Anyhow, welcome. I'm Francis Seeley from Global Net 21. Um, I'm hoping we'll get another five to ten people, but we'll see. That's what we're expecting. But whether it will happen uh, that evening will sort of unfold for us. Um, we, we're doing this meeting in conjunction with the, the Commonwealth Hall Ethical Society. And the idea behind uh, these meetings, and we do them four times a year, is that we get, discuss some aspect of ethics and politics. Um, and we've done several meetings on that um, already. Uh, this meeting, we wanted to look at, at uh, to what extent does political change happen in our society. In Global Net 21, we have people who have a whole series of different views about how change happens. Um, some people believe that you should change and you can only change through the parliamentary method. We've got to lobby our MPs and lobby Parliament and make change that way. There are others who believe that you can only make change by protest uh, on the streets um, and pressure that way. We have people who believe that you can only make change by working through corporations and industry and social responsibility. And we also have people who believe you know, none of that nonsense. We've got to start again from the beginning. We'll set up alternatives in civil society that really are parallel to the parliamentary system because we have no faith in the system any longer. But there's another way that change happens, and that's what we wanted to look at tonight. That change sometimes doesn't depend on individual action, particularly. doesn't depend on parliamentary change, but it depends on what you call cultural change. And we've got three people speaking to us tonight who are going to speak about three aspects of cultural change. Um, cultural change is change that happens within our society, within our groups, within our communities, in the way we think about how our society should be, that very often leads what government is doing, and government often plays catch-up to that. I'm old enough to have lived through the 60s <laughs> and know what change happened there um, because of the the sort of liberating atmosphere of that time. And that had an impact on a whole series of legislation that happened then in the 60s to the 70s in terms of identity politics and personal uh, freedoms. Uh, and so what we're going to do is talk about that. And we've got three people who are going to talk about three different aspects of it. First, we've got Matt Scott. Now, Matt is very involved in civil society and believes in the importance of civil society. He's built up coalitions of community groups. He has worked with the London Council for Voluntary Services. He lectures on community development. Um, he had a meeting this afternoon to look at how you can network a city like London, and the deputy mayor was at that meeting. Um, and he, he's going to talk about how civil society can help change things from the bottom up. And then we've got uh, Charlie, Charlie Blowers, Charlie's going to talk about the role of art. I mean, I mentioned the 60s and the impact of music culture at that time and fashion and so on. Charlie's very involved in theatre. She has her own company, but she works with a company called London Playback Theatre, which does, I do almost a sort of participatory theatre. They get people to tell stories and then they have a group who spontaneously act out those stories and then start a discussion. And it's all about art for transformation. And that's another way attitudes change. And then we've got Evan, who most of you know. And Evan is going to talk about the impact of science on this change. Now, some people would argue that's the biggest factor of all. When you change from Newtonian physics to quantum physics, 
it changes how we view the universe and whether in fact there is such a thing as cause and effect. Parliamentarians traditionally think there's cause and effect. But if you get into things like chaos theory, it starts making you rethink lots and lots of aspects of society. And Evan's going to, I hope, take us through that. He's promised not to pull any punches, but then he never does. Um, though he's, he's got a code today, so he might be more secure than usual, which we have an effect on him. Anyhow, we're going to start with that. I'm going to speak for about 10 minutes each, and then we're going to vote you all in questions and comments. And because it's not a huge number, hopefully it will be more deliberative than when we have a, a bigger audience. So let's go, first of all, then with Matt. Thank you, Matt. Thanks. Good evening, everyone. Um, yes, so huge topic. I think I'm going to really enjoy the debate that we, we have. Hopefully we'll have a kind of really lively kind of exchange of ideas. Um, quite challenged to pull together a whole range of thoughts in, in 10 minutes. Um, I suppose I was kind of struck with two kind of quotes around culture, which I came across a while back. Um, I think culture sometimes can evoke very strong feelings. Um, Joseph Goebbels, no less, um, said that when he heard the word culture, he reached for his gun. And I don't claim to know exactly why it triggered that kind of response, but I do think that culture can be an incredibly powerful and creative thing that threatens would-be dictators and people in power. Um, and then you've got this guy, this management guru, um, attributed quote, Peter Drucker, who said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Um, and I guess I see a lot of that in terms of working with um, large bureaucracies and the stories that people tell that work in them about the institutional and large and small political culture kind of grind them down. Um, so regardless of the glossy brochures that say we will do this in our five-year plan, what people are living with when they put their mask on and walk into the office is something very different. So um, I think political and institutional culture is a profoundly important thing. Um, and I, I studied committee empowerment, New Labour, piled a load of money into that in the previous decade. Um, and in the conversations that I had with people, you know, before they could even think about empowering, whether that's um, whatever your take on that is, um, they had their own lived experience. And quite often they felt very boxed in and constrained by the cultures that kind of bore down on them. So, so just that. And I suppose likewise as a community worker, um, and I've done that for 20, 30 years, I'm kind of quite conscious of my own culture, which is pretty privileged in terms of white male, middle class, etc. Um, and certainly in the kind of area that I work with, there's a, a kind of a need to recognise that and challenge that in, in ways that perhaps society, you look at the House of Commons, you look at the kind of the, the breakdown of the, the people that rule over us, um, the cabinet of millionaires that invented the big society, um, that claimed we were all in it together. It kind of didn't necessarily ring true when you look at their background, um, shall we say. Um, I'm thinking about um, culture and change. Um, and a couple of things that I wanted to, to kind of flag up there was um, one way of approaching it might be through um, structure and another might be through agency. Um, I'll try and give you practical examples as well as some of the theory behind all of this. But I think it's very easy for those in power to um, talk about behaviour change. So you get pathological and dysfunctional individuals who live in poor areas. Um, and the recipe for that is self-help um, and a fairly punitive benefit system. Um, and, and that's how things change. But it could be equally true, if not more so, 
that the structures of government, of the market state, of big business are the ones that create these problems um, and that local problems that individuals face day to day can only truly be solved through global governance, through, through national um, efforts that actually tackle some of those structures. Um, and I'm kind of interested in not burdening individuals in poor communities with um, all of the blame and all the responsibility. Um, so I think that's really important. And I think in terms of um, how change happens, I'd, I'd kind of offer up a sort of a, a triad, if you like, of consensus, pluralism, or conflict. Um, consensus might be, we're all in it together. Guess who said that? Yeah. Um, the only thing that really matters is that uh, we get the right people in the right place, get the right systems, off we go. Um, you may recognise some of the flaws in, in all of that. But we assume a consensus, and the only question is about managerial systems. Yeah, there's no real power inequality in the room. Um, pluralism, we recognise the game is slightly rigged, we recognise it's not a level playing field, but we can do deals, we can do a bit of horse trading, um, and although the tenant activist doesn't have the same kudos and support as the leader of the council, maybe they'll get along, maybe they can kind of work something out and something good will happen for the local youth centre. Um, and then we have conflict, which is um, I suppose the proposition Operation Black Vote used was that power is never given um, and that those in power have a vested interest in retaining that power and the only way that they move is through acute conflict. Um, quite a pessimistic view, but I guess I believe in my community work that you mix up your tactics and you think of all of those things um, and you, you choose accordingly. Um, if you look at Saul Alinsky, community organising, you know, President Obama was a Chicago organiser, then, you know, Rules for Radicals, Alinsky, he was all about that. And there's a massive irony that the government would be sponsoring a community organiser programme based on that particular analysis, but so it goes. Because actually, if you look at the ideology and how it works, quite often um, government and particularly ad agencies are very skillful in co-opting rebellion. Um, and we've seen that a lot. So some of the most um, Leninist tactics are co-opted Hence, we have things like vanguard areas for our health trusts. Anyway, um, moving on a little bit. Um, I mean, Francis has kind of posed this in terms of parliament um, versus the culture of civil society. I really should say a little bit more about some of that. Um, I was very struck by Joe Cox's question to David Cameron, um, which he, he particularly, it kind of took him back a bit. The debate was around immigration, and the question that she asked to him was... Um, are you leading opinion on this debate or are you following it? Yeah, following it by some of the more uh, negative media that is kind of out there. Um, and I think there's no doubt that a certain kind of, of culture, and it's been quite extraordinary times, has been incredibly powerful um, in a force. It's, um, you know, we can't assume that it's benign or malign, uh, but it certainly moves in all sorts of directions. Um, I think that in terms of does the state have agency, I think that government has ceded a lot of power to um, the market. You have this kind of like market state, you have revolving doors between cabinet ministers, off they go, nice um, directorship, etc. Um, but I still think that um, particularly at times of crisis, at times of war, when capital is degraded, for example, and there's rubble, that you pretty soon realise that there is a government and it has agency and it can do things. Um, if you're interested in Thomas Piketty, Capital in the 21st Century, very big book, very simple argument, you know, that's absolutely what he says. He, he sees capitalism, he's not particularly a radical, 
um, as something that, in, that will inevitably create inequality. It's a kind of a U-shaped curve. We're hitting Edwardian levels of inequality, and it's only going to go up and up and up unless there is a realignment, and in effect, you know, he sees that as um, state-led. Um, my interest, as I've said, is civil society. What do we mean by all of that? Um, I've not given you a take on um, my thing of culture, which maybe I should have done. Civil society, I think, is part of a three-legged stool. So as an image of what makes up society as a sociological proposition, we've got the state, i.e. government, we've got business, city of London, whatever, and then we've got this something else, which I think is about voluntary and community organisations and wider. Um, and I'm kind of interested, because that's the field that I work in, in terms of reclaiming as much power and influence with voluntary and community organisations. Um, but clearly, and the idea of a three-legged stool was used in the House of Lords when the, the big society uh, um, advisor was, was appointed. So if you look up in that way. But the thing is that it's not a level um, thing. So the state and the markets have far more power than individual community groups do. But it would be nice to actually kind of consider that um, that could be kind of levelled out. Um, looking at the time, moving on. Um, I think that how I've seen community groups challenge power is, is kind of really by creating their own culture and their own space. Um, I remember working on a New Deal for Communities project where something like £45 million was going to go to a very small area. And the government guidance basically said that um, communities must be in control and you must have a majority of residents on the board. Yeah? Well, the board obviously makes all the decisions on that 45 million quid. Um, when it came down to it, the powers that be decided that no, they didn't think it was a very good idea to get a load of residents running that kind of money. We created a space for residents to unpack that. Um, and we used a lot of arts and a lot of storytelling. So we talked about money and we talked about politics and people were going to fall out with each other. Um, I was talking to Charlie earlier about how we use things like playback theatre, just anything to sort of like liven it up and get people to relate to each other. Um, we used a lot of kind of local history, we used a lot of storytelling, all of that kind of thing. Um, and through that kind of process, we got people willing to walk through fire so that they would actually go to the board and say, well, we put it in writing to you several times. If you don't give us um, what we want, which is what government's advising, you're not going to be able to run this meeting because we're simply going to walk out. Brinkmanship, if you like. But basically, it worked. They got their majority. Um, and I'm not sure whether it was a particularly happy story in terms of how much changed in the longer term, but it was definitely a moment where people were able to thoughtfully affect the rules of the game. How am I doing, Francis? Do I need to wind up? Okay, thank you. I mean, I do think that um, civil society um, is a really powerful thing, but I don't think people really begin to know what it is. So. I would put it this way, there are about 120,000 community groups in London, um, and that's a powerful resource. There are literally millions of volunteers, if you think that one in four people is, is fairly regularly volunteering. Um, that's a huge kind of buried resource, and it is amazing, I did this event, as Francis was saying, with the GLA, that they don't even have the beginnings of a community strategy. They've got things like community plans, and they've got a Team London, but this huge added value of acts of kindness and goodwill is not factored into the mix, and yet it's saving millions of pounds. It's meeting the needs of the most um, excluded people. They wouldn't dream of not having a dialogue and a proper plan working with the City of London, for example. 
Um, but basically, it's assumed that people are going to rock up and volunteer and be part of this civil society. I think that's a, a wonderful thing, but I also think it's a missed opportunity in the sense of it's not given the, the profile that it requires. In terms of, if you're interested in looking at it, the National Council for Voluntary Organisation has this thing called an almanac. So just to, to give some sort of science to it, or at least research... Um, they reckon that there's close to a million civil society organisations in this country. Some of them are trade unions, oddly enough. Some of them are public schools. Some of them are charities. But basically, we tend to get hung up on this idea of charity as uh, co-terminus with community group. Most civil society organisations are meeting in somebody's front room, somebody's place of worship, mosque, uh, tenant hall, wherever. Um, and it's that kind of collectivity that really drives things. And I think is a an expression of informal democracy, not the cross on the box every five years, but actually people coming together to take collective action. And it could be something joyful and celebratory, like a kind of a community arts project, um, nothing particularly political. It could be something more around running a crash. It could be any number of different things, but certainly those are the, um, the things that I would point you towards. I was going to say, in your last sort of 60 seconds, to mm. what extent do you think all that voluntary activity are actual agents of change? Well, I think it is um, change in the sense that it's relational. Yeah? So I think that people um, create the world in terms of their relationships, in terms of the dialogue, um, and that it becomes a humanised process in, in the sense of we are what we do. Um, and I think that idea of creating alternatives um, and taking action is an incredibly powerful thing. I don't think... Um, in terms of the power structure that bears down on people's lives, that it's anywhere near um, beginning to affect these things. I think that requires a huge amount of coalition building right from the international level. So you could look at the World Social Forum, the European Social Forum, etc. You could look at a whole range of social movements and the connectivity that you need there. Um, but I think it's a, a hugely powerful force that it offers um, a counter hegemony, a counter way of seeing the world, which I think um, means that whilst it, is, it exists as an expression for itself, I think that it has the potential to show that another world is possible, another way of doing things is possible. So I'll leave it there. Okay, thanks. Um, okay, and you mentioned, uh, you know, the, the many, many groups, and some of them are art groups, and Charlie comes from these two yeah. art groups. And also, it's given a lot of thoughts. I mean, she did a seminar with us about social prescription, how, how art can be used in the work with GPs so that when people, um, uh, you know, don't need medication, they actually need therapy of some kind, GPs can link with all sorts of groups outside. So there's a transformation of change in individuals. And how far that translates to social change is a big question. So it's over to you to answer the big question. Okay, am I... Oh, you've got me. All right. So can I do that standing? Does it work like that? Closer. You can use this one. That would be fine. Can you hear me now? I don't usually use microphones. Go on, protect. Yeah. So, um, yeah, when Francis asked me to contribute to this evening, I... I was excited, but also lots of possibilities came forward. But the two uh, key areas that came forward to me when I was thinking about the role of the arts um, to potentially influence social, uh, cultural change were empathy 
and complexity. So the, the potential of the arts to really support emotional connection and also the capacity of the arts to hold um, detail of experience and the multi-layers of experience. Uh, and I was thinking about how within empathy and within uh, complexity and the relationship between the two that there is this, I feel, this potential to really influence cultural change through things like building community, facilitating shared experience, being alongside difference, uh, raising awareness, supporting a thinking environment where people can think together uh, and mobilising us into action. So I wanted to talk a little bit about empathy and complexity, this capacity to hold layers of, of, of experience. Um, and then to talk briefly about illustration, so some of the work that I'm aware of, but also that I'm directly involved with, which in a small, but I hope kind of significant way, is, is uh, moving towards positive uh, cultural change. <coughs> So, uh, when I was thinking about empathy and how, how do the arts support emotional connection? Um, and there's been a lot of research on empathy since the 1900s and it's, it's clear that empathy is one of the main ways as humans that we find a way of sharing experience. Um, but what's more recent is, and hasn't been as well understood, is that empathy isn't just a psychological process, it's also a physical one. Um, it's a highly integrated process that involves both cognitive and somatic, so of the body processes. Um, when I was developing my own company, Moving Pieces, I was thinking about, you know, what, what's the mechanism in empathy? What's, what's happening neurologically? So what's happening in the brain? Um, and I looked to people like Galise, who's... Um, uh, a professor of human physiology at the University of Parma, and he, uh, many of you will know his kind of famous work in the 1990s where he, he basically discovered uh, or found evidence of a um, mirror, a neuronal mirror system, um, which he actually discovered accidentally, but he was essentially researching the relationship between acting and the witnessing of an action. Uh, and discovered that when we witness somebody in action, neurologically the same mirror neurons fire in uh, the brain of the person that's taking action and the brain of the person that's witnessing that action. So there was this evidence for a kind of embodied empathy, uh, that we are transmitting experiences to each other. Um, and this happens as part of you know, regular life, to some extent, but I was thinking particularly how this potential for embodied empathy is focused um, through different art forms like storytelling, <coughs> theatre um, and action-based performances. So as we witness others, our posture, our central and our autonomic nervous systems to some extent are configuring or mirroring those whose stories and enactments we witness. Um, so that there's this potential to really link on an emotional, um, to link the emotional experience of self and that of the other through this embodied empathy. Um, I also looked at the work of people like uh, Stephen Porges, 
who some of you may have heard of, Stephen Porges. He's um, a psychiatrist and director of the Brain and Body Centre at the University of Illinois. He's becoming very well known for his theory on polyvagal theory. Um, but he's essentially really looked and studied in depth our, our responses to stress and also uh, how we can regulate emotionally. Uh, and he gives a lot of attention to what he refers to as a social engagement system so that as humans we are very sensitive to voice, to facial expressions, movements uh, of others, and we rely on this connection and communication to regulate our emotions. So essentially he's uh, saying that we are designed as human beings to regulate our experiences with each other. Uh, and I feel that the arts offer contexts where experiences can be shared, um, that there's opportunity for those experiences to be empathised with and also put into circulation with others, which um, I believe potentially addresses issues around mental and physical health and a whole range of other social issues. Um, so complexity, one of the amazing things I think about the arts is uh, how within one process uh, an experience uh, can be held that may have lots of detail and, and, and is multi-layered. Um, I guess I'm sort of proposing that, that often we're quite attached to clarity uh, and polarised positions which leave out information and detail which may actually be essential to effective and sustainable change. So the arts have the potential to hold these layers of experience, to consolidate, transmit the complexity of experience, holding, whether that's within, within an image, storytelling or a piece of music, polarities and, and conflicting aspects. So conf conflicts that can be alongside each other uh, and the relationship between them potentially explored rather than eliminating one or the other for the sake of clarity or quick resolution. Um, I also think that with artistic representation and the use of metaphor, um, that the metaphor can offer some distancing, uh, which allows for experience to be processed more easily, um, particularly when uh, themes those experiences might be connected with very highly charged um, emotions. Uh, also, I was thinking about how the arts often um, offer an opportunity to describe and share experience that can't easily be described in words. Um, so it allows wordless experiences to be brought into a relationship with others, which challenges issues like isolation and loneliness. So that's kind of theory. Um, so illustrations, a work that I'm aware of and involved in. I mean, one of the which Francis did when we were talking about this evening, um, Kathy Come Home, the film that was directed by Ken Loach. Um, you know, there's this very compelling narrative of a young couple who descend into poverty based on a sequence of events and decisions. Uh, and I think when uh, when you watch that film, um, that we feel for them as a couple, but that we also see ourselves 
we see uh, how close that possibility potentially is for us and that organisations like Shelter were um, set up um, very close to the showing of that film. Um, organisations like Cardboard Citizens, many of you will be aware of, based in London, who invite people who are homeless to come and train with professional actors to share their experiences of homelessness, but to gain skills and to then be able to transpose those experiences into creating really compelling theatre for a wider audience. Um, I mentioned Moving Pieces, which is my company. I'm also co-director, artistic director of, of London Playback Theatre, which, um, as, as mentioned before, is they're both essentially about improvisational theatre. And uh, playback theatre, uh, London Playback offer regular performances um, that are often themed. We've been fortunate enough to work in collaboration with Francis on a number of occasions, um, looking at themes like ageing and loneliness, um, an invitation to talk about refugees, uh, questions like where do we go from here? And part of the performance is that uh, the audience uh, is invited to share stories that are then played back by actors on the stage. Um, often what happens is that, and we call it the, the red thread in, in playback theatre, one story evokes um, sharing from somebody else in the audience because they, they feel a resonance or a similar experience, or they may feel that they've had a very different experience. Uh, and what tends to come out of that is a lot of conversation and discussion amongst audience members. Um, and as the process, as the, the, the performance progresses, there's often a sense of empathy building, a sense of community building, uh, and, and creating an environment where people can actually think together. Okay. Um, there might be reflections at the end of the performance, um, how you know, people's views been altered, how, how might this express itself in terms of pooling resources, building networks, taking action, opening a dialogue. All things that I think can potentially really contribute to positive moves forward. Um, and the last point that I've got is um, I just wanted to make a point about transferability, if that is actually a word, I'm not entirely sure. Um, but I don't, I don't think the value uh, is, is just about um, art making or, uh, uh, or the performing arts or attending performance arts events, is that I think there are really helpful transferable principles that come from engaging with the arts and creative processes that could really helpfully be applied to uh, decision making processes. Um, and I was just, as, as a last point, I was thinking about recently my company devised a piece of theatre on bereavement uh, and we devised through a process of improvisation and the skills required for improvisation are staying with uncertainty, including everything with a broad awareness, being present to what's happening in the here and now, being flexible and responsive, adding or changing your position based on what comes forward, dialoguing between conflicting aspects and listening deeply to yourself and others. And my fear is that the underlying value of the arts and creative process, which is largely expressed through 
um, diminishing funding is under and underestimated in terms of how we relate to ourselves, each other, and the responsibility that we have to find positive ways as a society of moving forward. Okay. Thanks a lot, Charlie. Um, when, you <laughs> when you said you were pleased to work with me around the process of ageing, I wonder what you meant for a moment. Did I say that? Yeah, <laughs> that's okay, I don't mind. Um, anyhow, the other thing, I, uh, I always love getting Charlie to speak because when she speaks about art, she always does it in a scientific and, theory and sort of theoretical context, and that always makes it really, really compelling and interesting. So in a way, she may have stolen your thunder, Evan, though I doubt it very much. So Evan's going to talk about the scientific aspect now. Okay, Francis, thank you. I'll, I'll speak now. Everyone can hear okay? Do you yeah, want to sure. Can yeah. you use the mic because you get it recorded now? Oh, right, okay. Right. Um, well, thank you. Uh, very interesting uh, contributions from my previous two uh, panellists. Um, I'm, I'm going to be a bit more visionary. Um, uh, on this subject uh, and sort of looking ahead but I think we'll address some of the fundamentals that, that both uh, Matt and, uh, and Charlie talked about. Uh, I make zero apology for being a bit ethereal um, because uh, I'm very much looking to the future. Uh, I'm, I'm well aware of, of, of what's gone wrong in our society today and many things have. <coughs> the issue about whether politicians or whether people at the bottom have influence on society, of course, both have influence. Uh, and over the time that uh, society existed, and we've had some totally bastard politicians, as we know, who've run rotten societies uh, across the world, some of them in the last century, for sure. Uh, you might say not very, uh, it's getting worse, you say, rather than getting better. Uh, the possibility of Trump coming in, of course, creates all sorts of other potential other problems which we will worry about. Um, but I think there is, uh, I think we're on a cusp of, of a radical change in the way society can operate. Uh, there's a big game changer, uh, and that essentially is science and the ensuing technology. I believe that can change everything. Darwin changed how we thought about God, or how the world thought about God, for sure. Uh, Einstein came in and gave us lots of, in principle, lots of glorious energy we can use, which doesn't produce much carbon dioxide. Um, Berners-Lee came in with the internet, a total game changer. Uh, and then Page and Brint, I think, who came up with Google, absolute game changer in this world. These things can change society. And what we have to think about, how we can best use these things to implement the sort of change that we're looking for. Uh, I'm not letting... Um, capitalism, of course, has been the thing that's uh, gained us uh, a lot of uh, economic prosperity. It's delivered a lot to us. We should not underrate, underestimate its importance. Uh, but it's starting to go wrong, big time. And as, as people have uh, pointed out, it, the, it's starting to uh, deliver large inequalities, and, and in particular, it's starting to produce a lot of moneyed elitists. 
Now they themselves might say, because if we had all their money divided between us, it wouldn't make much extra for us. But we don't like it. I think the human being has an innate sense of fairness. And uh, we don't like to see these people walking home with millions of pounds in their wage packet every day. The bankers, they were virtually lynched in 2008. They were told to come to work in, in, in uh, not balaclavas, in, in, uh, boil, in uh, boiler suits. Otherwise, they might have been lynched. We don't like that. Trump and Brexit, I think, are a consequence of that. The people have been felt, because a lot of people felt let down by the existing system. And they're going to rebel. They've done it in the past, and they've done it recently. So you have to keep everyone happy in society. Um, so I think time for a radical change. I think what is lacking is new ideas, and also people of inspiration who can promote those ideas and ultimately bring them to implementation. Um, and I'm going back to the constituents. Well, what has society consists of, of course, of people like you, like you and I. In fact, generally not like you and I, uh, but let's pretend they are. You know, it was an interesting just, we're, we're basically selfish, pleasure-seeking individuals, all of us. That's how we got where we are. I'm not making an excuse for that. That's their starting point. But my God, we're selfish. Do you know the, this heating allowance that us old buggers are given to keep us warm in winter? It's about 12 million of it got in. And we were invited that if we didn't need it, to hand it back. How many handed the £200 we got back? Uh, 27 people. 27 out of 12 million. That's human nature. And that's something that we really have to deal with from the onset. So, <clears throat> we, we, these are our attributes, but we're nothing without other people. And I think that's what we have to emphasise. We are completely dependent on other people. All of us. Nothing by ourselves. And the questions to ask, I think, is do we inherit <clears throat> or are we born with a culture in us? Are we stuck with it all our lives? Uh, does it really define <clears throat> our attitude to other people? Our close friends, our family, our neighbours, the people you come across in the street, and people across the world who may be in very unfortunate circumstances. Do we care? And what about how do you feel about your inner self? I mean, do you feel a confident person? Do you think you're a leader, a follower? Um, those things are very fundamental to uh, the constituents which make up our society. And how do you get at those? How do you understand any chance to making those, in a sense, better than what they are? And of course the answer is education. Not the type of education that we have now. That is for sure. The education we have now is almost a complete waste of time. The education we ought to be having is the education that gets to us, that, that, that interrogates us, gets us to work with people, of all different types, gets us to talk to people. We don't we never talk to have a conversation with people. Education isn't that. You're taught to add up two and two. 
completely irrelevant. Artificial intelligence is going to take do all that for you in the future. I, I doubt that any of you can do a, a simple calculation in your head these days because you've got calculators. Education really needs to change beyond measure because only when that happens can I think you can start thinking about creating this better, fairer, engaging society, more considerate of others, uh, and willing to compromise. I think that's fundamental, and I think education is the key to all of that. Politicians. Well, I think the way we select politicians does got to change. Uh, democratic processes are, are rubbish, as we know, and the last general election showed that to be a case in point. We need to design, and it is very easy to design new democratic systems. But of course, the main political parties are not interested. They're being selfish. They're thinking of themselves, first and foremost. Somehow, we've got to change that mindset. So, I mean, how does science fit in with that? How does that make the change? How does science make the change? Well, science, first of all, is going to, is, is going to put us all out of work. New technology is going to put us all out of work. Uh, I've invented two new, new technologies which will change the world. Okay. One failed because the Chinese came along and, uh, and uh, uh, started dumping solar cells on the market. I spun out another company just recently, which I think is going to change the world. It will detect when you're ill instantly, much before anyone else knows when you're ill. It will make the, make the internet secure, if you can imagine that, a hack-proof internet. And it will also detect explosives, if you carry explosives on you, if you're really just, And that's why the Chinese are paying, giving me initially three million pounds to develop this, because they, they know that that's a, as a big seller these days, because terrorism is, of course, a problem for us. Um, but you're right, Francis, I'm not really... Uh, the, one of the problems is we're not going to have many jobs left by the time that uh, artificial intelligence is going to come along. The whole robot thing is completely oversold. Um, for sure, Stephen Hawkins is completely wrong with that. There's, we're nowhere near getting robots that can think like us. Nowhere near. And I doubt that we will want to. We will always be controlling robots, but they will do a hell of a lot of stuff that we that we can't do. Uh, even now, they're experimenting with uh, with uh, with uh, art of, with uh, robotic doctors in Lincolnshire. Not affecting going to your own GP. Available 24/7, wherever you are in the world. So that's for sure going to take up. So people have got to rethink work, and that's why I think the the uh, the word employment has to be changed because I think not so many of us are going to be employed. I think we need the word should be now engagement. How we engage with society, and that can be maybe producing the next robot, maybe helping uh, an old dear who's having trouble getting up the stairs, maybe mentoring a young person. That should be considered just as valuable and allow you to live a life because you're engaged with society. So the whole structure by which we actually pay people, reward people, I believe needs to be looked at. The, um, I think the word tax is one, also one minute. We, one minute. Tax, my last thing on this, the word tax should be abolished. This was introduced at the, whenever, 
11th century. It should be called personal investment. When you choose to give money to the government, it's your personal investment that you're giving to someone else to look after your personal interests, whether it's health, education, whether you're, if your house is going to be burnt down and put out, for example, and also you express your, uh, you, can, you can invest this, these, your sums off on the internet, you choose where it goes to. Wiki, it's a bit like Wiki. No one ever thought that Wikipedia would work, but it worked fantastically with people taking intelligent decisions. So I'm sorry I've been a little bit incoherent, but I only started thinking about this this morning. But that's it. Okay, thanks. Are you finished? Yeah, I'm finished. I've been thinking. Okay, th thanks very much. Okay, so we've had, we're getting applause from the front row. Thank you, Gary. As, as always, there, when you lead the way, everyone follows. So that was good. Um, okay, so we, we've had some interesting contributions. I mean, first two really about transformational change and how, how through civil society and the many, many hundreds of thousands of groups that are developing and developing coalitions and creating a mosaic of activity that creates an energy within society that generates change. And then we talked about, through the arts, the development of empathy and complexity um, and how that can, almost by osmosis, move from one person to, to, to another in a, in, a, in a process of transference, which can culminate in a new culture. And then from Evan, apart from talking about some of the big changes, I mean, he's talked about the movement from you know, gravitational theory to quantum physics to Darwinian um, evolutionary uh, ideas and how that's had a real impact on culture. He then talked about artificial intelligence, how that's going to change um, uh, our work patterns and, and perhaps turn us even further into the gig economy, which is going to make more pressure on social care and social um, survival for many people who don't have the means to, to, to work permanently. So there are going to be real changes because of those happening. But he also talked about that, the fact that uh, what's important in change is ideas. You need new ideas. And it's the sharing of ideas that becomes important. And culture really is about you know, the culmination of the sharing of those ideas. Anyhow, I'm going to hand over to you now. I'm going to do chairmanship by standing up simply so that I can bring the microphone to you because then you will get recorded. I gather Sid is recording this for us. And if you don't come on the microphone, we won't hear your question. So chairmanship by standing up is a new method. Derek. Was it you? No, no, it's you. You're not there. Don't worry. I just want to take um, issue with um, you, Evan, and, and I'm, I'm not being critical because I know you were taking a, a role, but um, the view that we are all selfish, I think, is mistaken. Um, the most selfish people are the most successful economically, and that's what capitalism instills in us. Um, the, um, the ruthless person rises to the top. But I think in all of us there is a selflessness which um, we will need to develop uh, in the future as our role becomes, our, our current roles become redundant 
and uh, we, we need to fill our lives with, it's going to sound naive, but a caring attitude. Okay, I'll get a couple of questions first. I'll come to you in a minute, Derek, because it's impossible to have two Derek's in a row. Um, anyone else? Let's have Lady first. I think, I'm not sure if I um, heard you right, so sorry, but uh, you said something about how our democratic process doesn't work over here, and I just asked what you meant by that. Okay, sorry, I didn't quite get that. Uh, uh, the question was, she wanted to know what was meant by our democratic process doesn't work. Okay, um, personally, I think you guys should have brought a fourth speaker on tonight, uh, someone to discuss the influence that religion and spirituality has on overall culture. Um, uh, pragmatically speaking, of course, uh, religion reflects cultural narratives, which as the lady here was saying, um, largely influence you know, people. So I think religion should also not be um, ignored. It plays a large part. Uh, ever since God died, as Nietzsche proclaimed, uh, there's been a massive increase in suicide rates um, just overall, people have been a lot more depressed and uh, studies show that the most happy people in the world are actually religious and highly spiritual, although it may not be based on, you know, facts, which is what science focuses on. I think it's very important to notice that human knowledge is very limited and even scientific understanding relies on faith in the end. So, yeah, I think religion should be mentioned. I, I thought someone will come back to you and take the first three and then do another round, okay? Uh, I thought someone would say that we needed a fourth speaker to speak and talk about religion because it's a, a fact. If we could take, and if you could take the first two points about people aren't really selfish and what do you mean by the democratic yeah. process? And then the question about religion. Religion and myth as well. Religion and myth right the way through societies had a, had a real influence on how people think and what they do and how they change. And maybe I could put that question to you, Charlie, and maybe Matt, you want to respond to that as well. But if you'd like to take the two first, the two points first. Okay. Um, well, you've got yes. Uh, the, in terms of uh, us being selfish, I think we are uh, inherently selfish. Um, uh, and that's why, why we, are, we got where we are, I believe, because we, we have an incredible sense of survival. Now, ultimately, you, 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 you get, come across other people and you find that ultimately you're, you are best served by working with other people. But when I drive on the roads, for example, I see incredibly selfish behaviour all the time. Um, when I, as I say, the case of the Hesiolites, uh, 27 12 million people. And these are people who live in southern Spain, didn't have their heating allowance, didn't hand it back. I think we are fundamentally selfish, but I think that's a sense is a starting point. What I think that we that, that the, 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 the next step is, and I think this is where education fails us, is to recognise this and then to uh, work on ways in which we can engage with people. I mean, how many times do you speak to people uh, when you've got on a train? I do all the time, but very rarely can anyone speak, anyone speak to me or the bus. We don't, we, we, we're little isolated individuals. 
Uh, and we don't talk to one another. We're not, we're, it's not just shyness. I don't think we talk to do that. So I think that's a, I think we just have to come out of ourselves. In terms of democratic processes, uh, the query on that is, uh, of course, uh, in Scotland, 3. million people produced 55 seats in Parliament. 12 million people who voted uh, UKIP produced one seat in Parliament. Our democratic system is rotten and needs to radical reformation. Okay, and what about the... I'd love to ask for the religion as well, but I'll leave Okay, well, okay. Let's that, get the other two in. I mean, what do you think the role of religion and myth and mythology as well, because it's not just religion, has on, on change? Um, well, I suppose, I mean, what I heard in your comments was, I mean, for, for me there's a... Uh, and this might just be really personal, separating out of religion and spirituality. And I don't, I mean, I think it would have been interesting to have a fourth speaker to talk about religion. Um, but I think uh, some of the reason uh, why people uh, really need to engage with the arts and myth is because of, of what I was saying earlier, really, about how it's, you know, there are experiences that we have as human beings that are um, difficult to get hold of uh, and, and require. Um, all the, the, the multi-layers that images and, and arts and storytelling can hold. And I think because of this kind of culture of clarity, reducing something, finding a position, that actually our, our possibility of expanding into a more spiritual experience is eroded. Um, and that, that's how I would kind of frame it. Um, a particular faith is a, is a, you know, I don't, know, I don't share that, so it's, it's, that's more difficult for me to comment on. But, but Matt, how about the fact that in, in this myriad of groups that are growing up in society and they're impacting on change, many of them are new church types of groups, um, in Christian religion and there are many Muslim groups as well, and these religious groups are having an impact on the way we think about society. And you know, from a, a community development point of view, that's got to be central in today's politics, hasn't it? It is central. Um, certainly, the New Labour uh, era. You know, the government talked a lot about faiths um, and and so on, and it's been on the agenda strongly since. Um, I was struck by, by two things. So, sort of community development perspective. Um, I'm very conscious that about at least conservative estimate around. 15, 20% of all community action, social action is, is faith-based. So, um, you know, that tells me in terms of moving communities, generating and supporting community action, that, that there has to be an awareness of that, that has to be in the mix. If you look around London, you have these things called settlements, you know, Toynbee Hall, etc., Oxford House, Cambridge House. A lot of those came from a, a church background in the, in the Victorian era. Um, so, so it's profoundly important. I've worked with interfaith networks, um, which is an interesting dynamic in terms of how different faiths cooperate with each other and the tensions within their individual faith of doing that rather than asserting their own particular belief. Um, and I suppose also a comment around um, community cohesion and some of that, you know, the riots in Bradford, Oldham, Burnley, etc., 2001. Um, and the, the war on terror. Um, sometimes government uses fairly slippery words, and when it talks about faith, it tends to be talking about 
um, the Muslim faith, um, and that, speaking to people of faith and community groups, they find profoundly irritating and difficult in terms of an agenda being corralled in a certain kind of way. Um, so, so it's a huge play. I, I teach um, students some community event work and that kind of thing, and um, I suppose one of the things I worry about is um, any dogma that restricts critical thinking. So um, Evan was privileging the idea of education, the importance, fully agree with that. Um, and, and just to, we talked about spirituality and myth. Um, Carl Jung said that religion is the barrier to its own transmission. So um, there's a difference between spirituality and a rather dried kind of rule book of this is how it is, end of story. Um, and Joseph Campbell talked about um, when somebody asked a Zen Buddhist monk what his religion was, he, he was completely perplexed because he claimed that he didn't have a religion, that he, he danced instead. Um, so I'll, I'll leave that for some ideas. Okay, let me go to this gentleman down here and then I'll come back to you. A question for Charlie. So you spoke about the kind of multi layered complexity of art mm. and how it's quite rich and intellectual and how it's a good thing. I want to ask is there any negatives to that? Because obviously, if the art is complex, I think the thing is trying to signify is complex. And sometimes, when an artist is too complex, people try to simplify it to a binary system to have.
acted their Shakespeare play, which was absolutely wonderful. And, and it, you know, it taught you how to speak to the other people who were acting with you, to project to the audience. And uh, you know, uh, for me, that was part of my very fortunate beginning of love for the arts. Uh, let's, let's take the first question for you, and you know, that is that there seems to be a predisposition to create simplicity and complexity. Now, how can the arts help with that? Does it add to that uh, movement towards simplicity, or can it somehow tell us all how complex life is? Yeah, I mean, I suppose um, what I think artistic and creative processes challenge is that the reality is is that our experiences are complex um, and that I think what happens a lot of the time is that we are defending against that and that there's a, a culture of no you only score points if you're really clear and you get to that clarity really quickly um, and that you have to sacrifice um, a lot of points of view and information in that and I think there's a position of negativity about the time that it would take to actually really sit with something that's complex the amount of thinking that you would have to do together the level of listening the tolerance of difference of opinion the, the ability to say actually having listened to you I've changed my mind I think there's something about artistic processes that can model what might feel like a sort of a bit of a cumbersome process. It has a lot more rigour and integrity, and I think the outcomes are often a lot more sustainable, and you see that in the art world. Um, so I think that the, the problem in my mind is that that time and the rigour of that endeavour is... Um, is framed as something that's quite negative and I think that's what needs to be challenged and, and that the, and the arts I think are in a really, they model that, a lot of artistic processes are quite agonising and difficult um, but the, the outcomes are solid, you know, for a lot of artists. Okay, and, and, and the question there raised, I mean, you, you raised that you left out religion and you raised that you left out demography. Uh, and Emma, do you want to speak about it? Thomas Bothos in the 19th century said that when population increased was such that the resources of the finite world could not happen. And then fundamental change is going to happen, whatever governments, whatever anyone else said. Yes, I mean, the demands that uh, we're putting on our environment now on, on, on the planet are huge. Uh, there's uh, probably at least half, if not two thirds of the planet, would love to have half what we have. As soon as that happens, we, we're running out of things big time. So that question has to be addressed. Uh, there's some people who think about this a lot and think that the, the planet can actually support quite comfortably 12 billion people, not the anticipated 9 billion that it's going to go to. So it's, it's, a, big, it's, a, it's a major question, for sure. Uh, Derek's point about whether we are, should be responsible, all that stuff should be, should be in a fundamental education process about what you do when you have a child, your responsibilities, etc. That should be part of that education. It's not. I don't think it's not anyway. Um, in terms of politicians being ahead of the game, they're not. 
uh, as some people know, particularly one person in this room thinks politics, politics, the way we do politics has got to change. They are not. They're mostly uh, you know, lawyers or, or social scientists who really don't know how to run a, world, a, a country. You need experts to run the big departments uh, in, in, of government for sure. Politicians should be there, I think, primarily to inspire. And that should be their big job. And uh, not much else, because most of the other things are very practical things that have to be done by experts. Okay, and the gentleman's point, and I'll put this to you, Matt. I know you put it in terms of science, but it does relate to communities as well. Politics is short term, it's every four or five years. Um, and governments concentrate on trying to regain power. Now, if you're in a community and you depend upon funding from the common government and certainty in the future, I mean, do we have to somehow create a future where we all stand outside in community groups of the cycle of politics and try to recreate our own future that doesn't depend on that? I think it's a both hand. I don't think it's binary. Um, I was reflecting on um, an area I used to work in which had the lowest um, turnout rate in local elections, um, which is pretty low if people know what um, question. Do people know their local councillors, for example? Many people don't. Um, but it had the, one of the best performing, strongest sure starts in a very uh, challenged area. Um, lots of attacks, lots of violence um, in, in the area and a lot of underinvestment. But the sure start that it had, it had about a 90% take up. People were very suspicious about walking into a centre, engaging with a health service, um, the fear of social workers taking children away, etc. But there was something there which kind of told me that the political disconnect, but having a really strong, powerful, organised community, that these things kind of coexist. Um, I'm, I'm fairly pragmatic about these things. Um, I think people need to work the systems from, from outside and inside. Um, I don't believe in a utopia or a single truth. Um, so, you know, things like Isaiah Berlin and John Gray, and maybe the history of the 20th century in terms of some of the people that thought they were right, Stalin, Mao, etc., it didn't end well. Um, so I'm into the messiness and the artistic uses of conflict um, to, to tackle that. So some kind of answer there. Okay, and, and Fiona, yours was an interesting comment, wasn't it, rather than a question. Yeah? I mean, if you want to do a question, it's fine, but we have the same. I don't know what you're saying. No, I was saying yours was an interesting comment, rather than a question, wasn't it? Um, okay, so this lady here. I would actually just like to respond to Fiona quickly, but I'm not going to use it. I've got a girls' school in Camden, uh, which is quite diverse area. Saudi Arabia, for example, you say that women can't drive on the side on, on drive chalk. 
Um, Islam's actually been quite a feminist religion and has allowed women, you know, openly said women can own land and women can do certain things. And I think there's a misconception about Islam. I'm a Muslim in any way. I just work with lots of young Muslim women. And, uh, yeah, I think we need to be open to that, that our idea of freedom. Do they wear the yeah, but this is the thing. I mean, how many women do you come across in London that are wearing a niqab? I, I, I work in central London. I live near Whitechapel. I think Fiona's point is about the niqab rather than the hijab. And the niqab prevents people from seeing the face. And I would not like to see men of any culture and nationality in London but wandering around on a daily basis with a full balaclava. Uh, I don't think they would be allowed to walk into banks with a full balaclava, and they wasn't really allowed to walk into banks with a, a full motorcycle safety helmet. So do you think people's wear a kneecap? There's one thing you have in year 13 who chooses to. And it's interesting, we've had a conversation in the past, and she says it actually makes her feel protected from men. But when she feels her face is covered, she can speak freely as an individual and not be judged upon the look of her face. I don't feel I don't feel protection when I see a woman wearing a niqab, neither for herself nor for myself. Okay, um, I think all I was just wanted to do was that Fiona said she likes for somebody to be in her face and nobody worrying how they would feel in the cell. Okay, I mean, that's taking the issue away. Can I just say, before I come back to you in a minute, but what I was going to say is that tomorrow night we're going to have an informal discussion uh, which carries this discussion on. We've got a different set of people coming, but if any of you want to come, you're welcome. Juliet here is running that, and we're going to ask her to tell you about that, and then she'll be able to ask her questions. Well, would you like to tell people about tomorrow night? Um, good evening, everyone. And um, tomorrow's night, uh, my name is Juliet, and I normally run um, once in a month an uh, open discussion. Um, and all of you are welcome, so we normally just pick up a subject that sometimes um, it could be like this subject. And assuming we've seen a big turnout like today, um, we carry on the discussion for those who are passionate about uh, carrying on that discussion. And next month we'll have something. Um, that we've discussed with um, um, Francis. And you're all welcome in that space. Uh, please send us ideas. We're constantly looking for um, topics that you enjoy, because it's about us, it's about everyone. And I think that's where I'm going with this. Um, what I'm really interested in is how do we make a better world for everyone? And I think that is special. Um, to ask my question, actually I just felt that to ask my question will be about um, this gentleman here. And I think when, I, when we talk about ethical um, and um, culture, I think we need to start thinking about everyone in this whole world. And I believe that everyone matters in this world. But I think that most of us sometimes um, will sometimes think that, um, I think, I think, what is your role in this world? And I think when you begin to define that, what is your role and understanding how you can improve the world, perhaps we might see that we are looking into the very same needs that everyone needs. And I've spoken about this a lot of times. And um, it is hard because of the issues and problems that we have seen across the world and issues that I feel 
that we human beings have perhaps challenged ourselves. But how do we correct that? So I think that in an open society, it is important to listen to each other. It is important to open up beautiful dialogue that uh, people will feel free to discuss openly. It is important to respect the environment and many other things. But it is easier said when we don't understand how to do those things. So I think I'll stop there. And any, uh, my question, sorry, was for um, religion. Um, I think that we need to look at um, uh, religion in, in our hearts as well. Because um, when we look at um, the, our hearts, uh, sometimes, because we have to understand different people like different journeys. So when we begin to look at religion, we can never forget the religion. I look at religion as, um, for me, I look at religion as the creator in my heart. And I think we need to understand the concept of death. I mean, just one point you might take up last, and then I'll come back, come back to you in a minute. Um, I mean, you mentioned what's important is our role in the world, our identity, and the empowerment of that identity. One of the cultural changes that's happening at the moment is this move away from identity politics into popularism. That identity politics is now under attack in a way that it hasn't been for a long time. That's a cultural change from a, uh, an, a sort of alienated population who feel that they've been left out. How do you respond to that, God? Francis, before that, can, can you put that information onto our mailing list? What, the, where the meeting is tomorrow? The, the meeting tomorrow. Can yeah, it's on the meetup site. It's actually on the Global Net meetup site. You can see it there. Is it? Yeah. Okay, so Francis has given me another big question um, that I've got to think about. Um, I think that identity politics is still alive and well in the sense that certain identities are demonised and vilified. Um, and we've seen that with Trump and his immigration policy and the way that it was uh, targeting certain countries but not others. Um, and I really worry that people are very selective in their identification of cultures that they approve of or disapprove of. Um, so I think that if we're talking about openness and this idea of open rather than closed rather than right versus left then I think that that challenges us um, and I think generationally we can look at various things that people struggled with in terms of expressions of all of that anyway Francis asked me about um, populism um, and hmm, Tony Blair said that populism of the right always seems to be populism of the left um, it kind of feels that there may be a bit of uncomfortable truth in all of that um, but um, populism as a tradition um, tends to flare up, but it doesn't necessarily tend to have the sustaining power um, because people, it's easy to make promises. It's harder to actually kind of deliver on them. My only thing I really wanted to kind of say on that is I think that it's a bit of an indictment when some of the poorest areas in America and in this country um, tend to vote for easy uh, demagogic uh, positions um, that actually leave them poorer and more isolated. So I think in America, for example, in the Midwest, um, these country, the, these constituencies that were most affected by um, the economic cycle, um, there's something there that um, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama did not get right from the progressive centre-left there. So I think that there's a real indictment of them in terms of the agency of politics. But um, 
I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic that through proper debate and interrogation of this, that um, we share more together than we do in terms of being easily divided. So that's my thought. Okay, thanks. Um, I mean, just to let everyone know, we plan to finish about quarter after 20 after, so we've got time for discussion. Um, who else has a hand up? Both of, both of you. I'm going to take the to ask questions before the first, if that's okay. Uh, I was just wondering if whether or not the need to envision to bring all of these ideas together. Matt's talking about community, it's great to get so many communities around the world to work like this, and then talking about the arts and drama and how you can get people to change their ideas and influence people and get them to interact and understand each other. And Evan's talking about the, how the changes are, are coming and how they're accelerating, how it's going to make such a big difference to us all. But it's also about we need a vision to bring the whole lot together, otherwise we're all going off in different directions and nothing's happening. Now, I know you weren't a fan on Marcy Tolman and uh, many people like this, so it needs to, a vision It's not like that, but nonetheless draws the whole thing together. Because at the moment we've got globalisation, which is someone's vision, or a group of big businesses' vision, which is managing to take money away from everybody else. And so these businesses are just getting bigger and bigger, and globalisations allow them to move the money around in the world without paying any taxes. And without the taxes, then the society cannot function. And so you talk about people being selfish, well that's what they're doing, they're being selfish in this way. And there's no way they're going to hand that money down or hand it back to other people who need it. And so part of the vision must be they actually don't need as much as they, they think they, they need. I remember on the radio once, I was in the car, you know, crashing the processes. Um, Maslow's an insurance uh, business guy, you know, they sound like four or five hundred, blaming and fortune. And they asked him, at what point did you think you felt comfortable and secure? And he said, well, when I got the 400 million. You know, and at that point, I thought, what's going on here? And he didn't feel secure and comfortable and said, 400 million, and this chap's not going to give anything away. So my question is, do we need a vision? How do you get it? And if someone's got the vision, how do you actually get it out there when you're fighting against globalisation? Okay, thanks. Um, uh, <coughs> I had a question about, uh, well, I have many questions, but I'll try and just restrict it uh, and hopefully it can sort of uh, uh, extend to all three. But uh, to start at a specific point, I don't know if you remember just recently there was. Uh, in Birmingham, there was an attempt to put on a play regarding the Sikh religion. And it's, it's, I don't even think they've got to the opening acts. <laughs> so the whole business about engaging, you know, where. Mm. So do you think, and then of course, uh, there was a horrible incident in Holland mm. where the film director was uh, stabbed because he made a film that was uh, critical of Islam. So my question is really two-pronged. Mm -hmm. One is the dreaded multiculturalism. Is that a problem rather than uh, a benefit? And the second thing is, in terms of the arts, um, does it need to apply a kind of self-censorship to sort of say, or to recognize that if you are going to question, you question very gingerly and very people want a better word. And this whole thing about not causing offence. Mm -hmm. Is that an issue? I'll keep it there, but I've got a lot, you know, the hopefully that should. Okay, that's, that's, that's a good question. 
the reality of the sorts of dialogues or those dialogues being shut down or those explorations being shut down and I think the arts reveal that. Um, I suppose what I'm really interested in is how an artistic process can challenge that where you can create sufficient safety that there doesn't need to be that sort of censorship, that there can be when I talked about um, a thinking environment where um, there don't have to be quick, I'm in this position, you're in that position, we need to get to total agreement, nobody dares to sort of, that there's a much more sustained uh, process that allows you to really enter into rigorous 
questions, exploration, and, and what comes out of that. But that doesn't mean to say that the arts aren't at the same time uh, revealing how we're not able to do that and have that exploration and dialogue with each other. Okay, and this gentleman said, you know, education is in a mess in a way, and you keep saying education is critical, and his question is, what do we do about it? Now, can you answer that in about two minutes? Um, education, I, you can now, uh, the, the, the way I propose we change education is to recognise you can get all the information you need about virtually any subject and all the understanding off the internet. You don't need a teacher for that. The teachers have to do a much more important role, and that's to nurture you and to mentor you. That's what they should be doing, to really cultivate this, your mind. Because the information that we all used to be taught at school, we valued geography, science, it's there on the internet. I can get it easily. I'm an expert on climate change. I've never, I've never been taught any climate change because I got it from the internet. And you can do that on almost any subject. Anyone who's interested can do that. So the whole way we prepare uh, the next generation, I think, has to change. But implementing that is incredibly tough. We have an establishment. We've actually exported our educational process across the world. We used to rule the world, remember? And that's when we formed the way we educate people. Now, it's, everyone's doing it. There's this pressure. You should abandon exams. If you, Finland, which is, has the most successful education system in the world, if you think that that's a measure. How many exams do they have? Zero. They have no exams. Exams corrupt education, and that's all we think about. We all think about our A-levels, our S-levels, absolute nonsense. Did I say enough then? Yeah, yeah. Right. that's okay. Come back. Well, I'd love to talk about religion. Um, I'm sure you do. Let's take the two questions, your question and the way they go together. I mean, you were saying that one of the problems is that the, that the vision that the progressives have has suffered very badly under the, the, the growth of populism and, and what does the left need to do to regain this vision. And your question is a general one, that we are actually lack vision. And of course, there is a view that in the century of chaos theory, the big better visions, better visions that we knew in the 20th century are no longer applicable. We have to find a new way of addressing reality. Um, I'm sorry to put that big question to you, or can we keep putting the big questions to you, don't they? Okay, yeah, thanks again. Um, so in, in terms of um, do we need a new vision, um, I mean, my, my thoughts were yes. I mean, I think vision, as a vivid dream, as something that's inspirational, um, is, is absolutely important. I think more than that, we need, we need a plan. Um, so there's this thing of, if you do not act, you will be acted upon. If you do not have a clear strategy um, and a vision, hopefully a principled one to, to inform that way, um, then someone else is gonna live your life for you, basically, so absolutely. Um, I mean, working with community groups, I tend to think in terms of what's the issue, what's the solution, what's the action? So I want to have a very open, discursive kind of exploration of reality, but I don't want it to stop there. So, and people naturally are solution-oriented. So people in terms of conversation, which is a very fluid and subtle thing, will get that. They will critically interrogate the world and their experience to it, and they will identify solutions, and they have the capability to take actions as, as well. So I think it's all possible. Um, and also one of the things I try and do with working with groups when they're bamboozled in board meetings, when money's being divvied out, for example, is to say it's like traffic lights. You know, they've given you a bit of a decision to be made. 
It's either green, yes, I agree, red, no, I don't agree, or amber, I need more time, I didn't understand what you said. But do not go into a meeting and rubber stamp something that you do not understand um, and then feel bad about it afterwards because it turned out to be not what you wanted. So I think there's something around um, decisive agent action. Um, and, and I think something around power is actually um, able, in many ways, I think from a top-down perspective in terms of how the world is run, um, a spirit of fatalism that we can't change things um, is really a success for those people that do actually have a very clear plan. I was mindful of um, Steve Bannon and um, Breitbart, for example, and just how influential that is. The guy has articulated himself as a kind of a Leninist. He wants to smash the state. You know, how seriously you can take all this stuff. But he's got a very clear vision and plan. And he's kind of turned politics in a, in a sort of quite a, a worrying direction. Um, briefly, multiculturalism... Um, I mean, the Parrick report um, in the early 2000s talked about this, and I think what Bikram Bikku Parrick sort of said was, we haven't done enough multiculturalism, and then people like Tony Phillips and David Cameron piled in with multiculturalism's dead, um, and I think the idea is to impose a kind of a monoculture that people have to integrate into. I'm not sure that that's a very open and respectful way of, of valuing people's kind of experiences, really, so um, I'm always thinking of, of that, really. Um, I thought the, the comment around education was really interesting because for me what that identified was, was class um, and I teach at two different universities and one's more Russell Group where the students don't have a problem, they've been brought up to um, have a sense of entitlement, great. Um, another place where I teach, it's non-traditional background um, and it's very much around confidence building and I think class and what you identified there in terms of that mismatch, given just how central education is, is a huge um, is a huge factor in terms of changing things. Okay, um, by the way, Juliet's got the address tomorrow night. She's just telling me that before I come to you. It's in King's Cross. I believe it is in. Uh, is it uh, at, I was trying to find the address actually. It's 37 Wifdale Road. Okay. It's off York Way. Yes, out of York Way. Yes. So you come off King's Cross Station, which is in the other station. I was just trying to find the address for you. And um, actually, I've just written some interesting points which I feel will be a follow-up for tomorrow. So those who have got burning questions, tomorrow is the space um, to do that. And feel free to continue that conversation as well. I'll pick some points spiritually. I can sense a sense of um, um, questions on uh, thinking and critical thinking of uh, and also population uh, children over there. There is also the um, cultural um, discrepancies of the Fiona over here, so that would be interesting. Thank you. Okay, if you want to find out the actual address and look for it, it's on the Globalnet <coughs> meetup site for tomorrow night. So if you are on meetup, go to Globalnet 21 and look for tomorrow night speaking, it will give you the address. Um, one thing that the left can do is to stop voting for people who don't agree with them. Um, I move from the left to the right, and all that's happened is I've been called racist, sexist, homophobic, and all the names in the book, um, which is also the reason why I don't like Breitbart, because if you must know Andrew Breitbart, uh, the owner was murdered trying to uncover Pizzagate, which is a sort of Jimmy Savile-esque scandal, which is currently rocking in the United States at the moment. 
And another thing is that uh, film that you talk about, the director that got murdered, was called Submission, and that was Ayan Hersieli, um, who I'm a big fan of. Uh, I read her books, and she now has a target on her back. She has done for a very long time, and she dedicates her life telling us about the dangers of Islam, particularly to women. So it's a shame that that girl left because she called it feminist religion. But from what I've heard, from what I've read, I, I couldn't disagree more. Um, it's a very worrying uh, ideology, to be honest. And I'm not saying that just, you know, willy nilly. I'm, I'm doing as much as I can to learn about it. And I couldn't disagree more. Okay. Anyone else? Um, yeah, just sort of carrying on from what the lady before me said. Um, in the University of Toronto, Canada, uh, there's a lot of uh, radical leftists that have emerged. They've sort of been bubbling underneath the surface of culture lately. And, um, I mean, the, 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 the government <coughs> passed a legislation uh, that sort of um, erodes the foundations of freedom of speech by making a, a, a law for people to use certain pronouns for transgender people, pronouns which, I mean, are quite impossible to uh, remember, like Z and Z and all kinds of silly garbage. I mean, they, they insist that the, you know, gender is not even a thing, it's just an identity. So that, that's, that's, a, that's a really big uh, sign of radical leftist politics going haywire. And that's why it's very important to avoid ideology overall. Anyone else? One more question, then one uh, Anybody else have some questions? Yes. I'll make it into a question while I ask one thing for it. Um, I was in a, an email discussion today with a friend who sent me something from The Guardian. And what I said to him was all this makes me think about the number of demands I have every day for ch charitable donations. Now, Evan talked about tax. And I said to him, I'd rather pay my tax and keep some, some, at least some of my money for doing things that I know will keep me fit and make me use my own brain, stop me having to rely on the National Health Service, in other words. Um, Am I, am I, is that very selfish of me? And, and of course I agree with Evan that taxation needs to be handled properly. Okay, I mean, we're talking about visions and, and we, we, we've talked about that in different ways. What Fiona said actually um, is a question of individual opting out. I mean, what's the role of the state? What's the role of the individual? And what's the role of society in that? And maybe we can get you to all answer that at the end. But the point that we're raised here is that um, I don't know how to make it general, I'll probably do you justice and forgive me if I'm but we've had developed in the last 20 years an atmosphere of political correctness, and we're seeing a sort of rebellion against that, which you sort of highlighted in what you said. Um, because in a way it stops people saying what they feel and that way they sort of fester up resentment and now it's come out in a huge explosion called Brexit and Trump. Now how do we avoid that happening again and how do we redress it back? Oh. <laughs>
Thanks very much. Um, I kind of wanted to respond to what people had said. Um, but Francis's question, I mean, I think we need to have open conversations like this, really. And I don't think we encounter spaces like this um, to get to know each other um, and to explore things, to think differently, to um, disagree with people, or at least maybe understand people better and come around to their point of view or not. Um, so that's a fairly woolly but important thing. I'm kind of a great believer in, in that kind of open space of, of dialogue and starting, starting simple and starting there. Um, I, I kind of agree with some of what's been said with regard to, I think sometimes the left indulges in a, a very easy vilification of people outside that particular spectrum of view, if you like, um, and it doesn't serve it well. There was a question, a little bit, a comment a bit earlier about have the left kind of, as I heard it, blown it a bit, you know, in terms of their um, lack of uh, electoral success recently. And I think broadly and self-evidently they have. Um, you know, the voting box doesn't lie, or, albeit some people might disagree with that in America. But um, generally, I think um, the Conservative Party has won about two out of three elections over the last couple of hundred years. You know, the, the right have got a pretty good record in terms of um, articulating the aspirations of, of the majority of people. Um, so I don't deny that. I guess my take on it is I'm, I'm much more interested in um, a kind of more progressive social politics, but whatever. Um, with Breitbart and that comment, I think we're going to disagree on that one. Um, I'm not convinced that Breitbart is a beacon of truth and enlightenment. Um, but I do recognise it as part of a debate, really. I do see it as something, it's all about that cut and thrust of ideas, really. There was a comment about we need to get away from ideology, ain't going to happen. Because ideology is about ideas. Everyone's got their set of ideas, and it's an open market of, of contesting that. Radical ideology. Again, radical what? You know, I mean, every government minister stands up and claims that their agenda is radical because they think that that sexes it up. So, you know, what are we even talking about here? But I, I just question, I, I don't want to see vilification and hatred in, in any form. So if we're talking about that kind of ideology, then, you know, maybe. Um, I think I've covered what I want to cover, yeah. yeah. So you don't look upon ideology as a secular form of religion? No. No, okay. Um, then that, if we could end up with both of you, and the question of the role of the society, the individual and the state, and how we move away from the sort of atmosphere we've created in the last uh, 20 years or so, that stop people being as open as they wanted to be, and resentment is built up that's created the sort of explosion we're having at the moment. I suppose I, I, was, I was partly wanting to respond to um, what you initially said, which is connected to what you were talking about as well, Francis, thing about, I think we think, uh, and this might be quite a provocative thing to say, but I think we think, like even in contexts like this, that we're we're having a really open dialogue and exploration, that, that there is something simple and a bit woolly about that. And actually, I think we really overestimate our ability to do that within our current sort of cultural position. I don't think we do it very well. I don't think we do really listen. I don't think we do really... Um, become very interested in what a very different point of view is. And I think in a lot of the processes that are currently on offer, um, it's
it's a bit superficial, our engagement with really having an open dialogue, really listening, and that it's, it's back to your point about education, is that I don't think um, that is a part of education anymore, actually how to listen very deeply to yourself and to another person. And whilst it sounds very open and simple, actually I think that's the foundation that um, needs to be in place through education, that, that to stand a chance of really thoroughly opening up um, dialogue and, and moving towards change. Anything else is twiddling, I think. Okay. Uh, ab absolutely correct. Um, the problem is we've never been taught to listen, I don't think. Uh, I don't think we've ever been really taught to engage in education. We don't do that sort of stuff. You know, we all be have empathy. I think you can teach people, you can demonstrate. And that's what education now should move to, not teaching us the, the nuts and bolts that we all learned at school. We don't need to do that. We get that from other sources. Then you teach people to have empathy with others. Then I think you start creating a much, much better world. Um, we're also, we're not allowed to make mistakes. And I think it's critical you're allowed to, and sometimes encouraged to have a go, make a mistake. You'll probably learn from it. That they think that the way our brain develops is through us exploring lots of different things which don't work, and eventually we get to one that works. That's what education is all about. But we're not taught that. You've got to get it right. You're rewarded for getting it right. And so the whole concept of the way we teach people uh, and, and I think really get addressed much more the way that they should ultimately have how they're going to engage with the world. Uncertainty, and this is why I want to just come on to the religion bit. The problem with religion is the certainty involved. And this is what I object to about religion. I think if you could treat any faith as essentially a hope, an uncertain hope, and I told that once to the Bishop of London, and he said, he absolutely agreed with me. It's an uncertain hope. Never be certain there's anything beyond this. I hope there is. I hope the religious people are correct. I've, all my studies of it suggest it's, you know, it really is not the case, which is very sad. But nevertheless, let people have that hope. Never have that hope, but it is, there's always uncertainty. So I think the whole concept of way we, 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 we're brought up, I think, needs to be a second, really revisited. One final thing, if you think politicians run and rule the world, think again. That politicians don't rule the world. It's the money elitists that rule the world. There's about, new scientists did a study in, 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 in 2012, 147 people essentially determining what their education system is like, what their politics is like, what almost everything is like. So this is a big, big problem, this hierarchical structure which runs the whole world. Banks are mostly privately owned. Most of uh, economic activity is driven by private individuals who want to make most money for themselves. How you actually get to address that is a major problem, but that's what needs to be done. Okay. Okay, well, well thank you everyone. We're, we're going to finish now, we have a chance to ask I'm sorry. Um, I mean, we really started this by looking at cultural change in three areas. And I suppose we ended up by questioning whether cultural change is happening, whether culture has actually gone into cul-de-sacs. And we live in an age of uncertainty. And some people are saying we've got to find certainty again. 
Others are saying we've got to actually learn how to live with uncertainty and the vision we've got to create is all of us living with that uncertainty and finding a way of living together because the world is not the homogenous one that many of us would like it to be. Our individual nation states aren't as homogenous as we would, some people would like it to be. So I think we've raised a lot of questions and I think the discussion has been really, really good. People have asked some really deep questions and they've done it in a very polite and courteous way, which I think is, is, is really excellent. So I want to thank the three of you for doing what you've done. Um, can I just interrupt? I'd like to say and congratulate my fellow panelists. They're both very good public speakers. It's a pity that I was. I played the drugs I'm on, the fact I've got a temperature of about 98 or 99. Gross apologies. You see, this, this man comes from the 60s, he's still on drugs. <laughs> um, but I, I think you all give us a, a round of applause to yourself as well, because I think you all like, you know, so, so that's great. <laughs>